0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2013. Today's episode is titled Rational Empirical Pragmatism. What is the source of business knowledge? The pedestrian assumption is that business knowledge is based on rational empirical pragmatism. Empirical means that the source of knowledge is based on experimentation in the tangible world. Rational means that reason is used to interpret the data, and pragmatism means that the guiding light for interpretation is whatever works to make money. Common business knowledge is generally based on what is known as best practices. Best practices are normally gleaned by analyzing case studies using rational empirical pragmatism. This is a naturalistic approach which excludes God in the development of business knowledge. Don't be deceived into thinking that business knowledge exists independent of God. To develop a sound understanding of business knowledge, one must begin with Christ. Rational empirical pragmatism can be a helpful tool only if it is subordinated to Christ as the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. The true best practices in business are those aligned with the will and ways of God. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled Building Organizations Biblically, Dream or Reality? Most of
1: us, in business, don't really think a lot about Scripture. Or at least I find that's generally the case, even those that consider themselves strong Christians. Generally, they view business as a place where they have to go and make it happen. You've got to go and get results. You've got to fight the wars. And generally, you don't think a lot about, you know, is God involved with me? And so I want to challenge you today to think a little differently. I want to challenge you to look at Scripture and consider maybe a different perspective on how you view business and particularly how you view theology and scripture relative to business so the questions that we want to try to deal with are these do biblical principles really work will biblical principles enable me to achieve financial success can I build an organization that will endure based on biblical principles And is it realistic to think that the Bible is relevant for business? Now, are those questions that might tickle your interest? That's right, you can talk to me a little bit, okay? Yeah, hopefully if you know the Lord, you have an interest in the Bible, uh, and you're interested in business, hopefully you're thinking, how do we connect this? Well, what we want to do is try to give you some ideas about how to do that. First of all, we need to recognize that all questions are answered based on your world view. Now in Canada when you use the world view, the word worldview, it's got a real negative connotation. Now I don't know your culture here well enough to know if worldview is negative. So if you'll look at me and say yes or no, is worldview negative? That's not negative. Okay, that's good. Alright, so we don't have to explain what worldview is. Now, here's a picture up here of a lens. And you see it the lens is looking out on the sky and you can see there's different colors. You see, uh, I'm saying it's not. You're not going to be able to put the razor laser pointer on it. But you see, you got blue here, and then you got some tinted color here, and that illustrates the differences that people have in worldview. Some people will see this, some people will see that, and so as people look at reality, they look at the events of life, they look at business, they can see it from different perspectives, and so. Your, that is your worldview. The question is, you know, where does this all come from? How does your worldview get, you get developed? And what does your worldview do for you? Well, your worldview is a way that you see reality, such as truth, right and wrong, and success. How many of you have uh, defined success? Y'all have a definition of success? Yeah?
0: Success is your is definition... The- pardon me? Success is the isolated-
1: it can be, but most of us have a definition of success, and most of us would say it's probably tied to money. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And we generally say somebody that's got money is successful. And somebody that doesn't have money, well, they're probably not very successful. Would you agree that most people would view it that way? Okay. So do you think Jesus was successful? You think he was? He was broke. He died broke. Was he a success? How can he be a success if money is success? And Jesus died broke. How can he be a success? You see the problem here? That
0: was his
1: mission. Huh? That was his mission. That's exactly right. And the definition of success that Jesus gives us is different from our common definition of success. You see, that's what a biblical worldview will do for you. It will redefine terms for you it'll redefine success it'll redefine right and wrong for example how many of you have been trained in may uh, have an MBA training or some kind of business training you got business training number you have those now when you went through business school did you not learn your principles from case studies that's what you study basically you found companies that that had a level of success that, as you defined it, or the professor defined it, that was worthy of being emulated, and so you study those companies to understand well how did those companies have that success, and we have lots of books written about these things. You know, probably the one of the latest has been Good to Great, been a very popular book. The one before that was Built to Last, and of course, you know, you have Tom Peters' books, you know, Built for Success, and all these kinds of things out there. But they're all case studies looking at companies trying to understand what are the driving principles that have made them, you know, achieve what we think is success. We have never asked the question, what is the biblical definition of success? Or at least I know very few that have. Maybe some of you have, but most that I run into don't even ask that question. So your worldview has defined for you these things including success. So maybe there's a worldview shift that we need to consider if we're going to open our minds to a biblical definition of success and understand how Jesus could be successful when he died broke. The common worldview today is called rational empirical pragmatism. That's almost like talking about an I.N. implantation machine, isn't it? Okay, It's like, what is this? Well, this is really not hard to understand. Uh, the first time you heard the word encyclopedia, it probably overwhelmed you, didn't it? Because you had never heard it before. So this is a term you probably are not familiar with, but it's a term It's easy to understand. Okay, rational means we use our reasoning powers to understand. Empirical means we learn from our senses. You know, it's we are experimenting in the physical world. And pragmatism means simply it works, based on whatever our definition is that, that we mean by it works. So rational empirical pragmatism is the common worldview in business that I run into in my travels and working with clients literally all over the world. So I want to give you an example of rational empirical pragmatism in scripture. So we can take a look at that and we can see how God responded to rational empirical pragmatism. Is that worth looking at? Since we probably are mostly, that's mostly our worldview, it might be nice to know what God's opinion of that worldview is. So we're going to take a look at the Tower of Babel. This is Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I'm going to read it to you. I'll make a few comments as we go. And then we're going to try to step back and see what it's telling us. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now these are descendants of Noah. These people came from the only righteous people left on earth after the flood. Remember Noah and his family? They were the righteous people. They're the only ones spared the judgment of the flood and so they have come from Noah. They've come from a righteous lineage. But they're still infected with the sin nature that came into the human race when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them come let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other so the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city this is why it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth so this is a project a real estate project, a real estate development project here that's recorded in scripture. They built a city and a tower and it was all about building a monument to themselves. And so the question is, you know, what does this tell us now about reality and about success and things of that nature? First of all, you ask yourself, how did they know how to build this? You know, what was the example they had? Well, we're not aware, we don't have a record of any prior construction projects like this except the boat project of building the ark. Now you remember Noah was the farmer and God called Noah to build a boat. Can you hear the conversation between God and Noah? God calls Noah and says, Noah I want you to build a boat. He says, great, what's a boat? Okay, well don't worry I'm going to tell you what a boat is. Okay, then he says, what's the purpose of the boat? Well I'm going to flood the earth. Okay, great, what's the flood? It's where the water's going to just rise up over everything, and it's going to wipe everything out. Okay, well, why are you going to do that? Well, because everybody's wicked. Okay, so what am I going to do now with this boat? Well, you're going to build it, and you're going to put all these animals in it, and your family in it, just to spare you from this judgment. He says, "So oh, great. Now, well, how do I build it? He says, don't worry. I'm going to show you. And so he obviously showed Noah how to waterproof. how to, He gave him the dimensions and exactly how many stories to have in there. told him all these details about the boat and undoubtedly there was a conversation at some point where when Noah says, well how are you gonna do this flood he says I'm gonna bring rain and Noah says what's rain? he says don't worry I'll show you what rain is so Noah was given revelation from God about how this is going to work now the, the descendants of Noah were not aware that God spoke directly to them like he spoke to Noah so most likely what they knew came through their heirs through Passing on from one generation to the next, and that's probably how they learned about waterproofing, because see, God had to teach Noah about waterproofing, and you see that in here that they didn't use pitch; they used tar. Now, why would you use tar for a tower like this? Is waterproofing because you need to make sure that the the grout doesn't break down in the in the elements, and so you put waterproof material up there to stand up. So these people got revelation from God through their heirs, not directly from God. So it was through tradition. Now today, we have scripture. We don't have to depend on oral tradition. They had to depend on oral tradition. But we have the word of God. So we have, in some senses, we have enhanced revelation that they didn't have. So how did they learn these things? Well, they learned these things by their heirs who experienced them. Noah experienced the reality of how to build a boat, how to waterproof the boat, how to do all those things, and undoubtedly he passed it on. So that was the rational, empirical side of it. And the pragmatism is, well, what works? You know, I'm trying to build a boat that'll float, and Noah built a boat that floated, it worked. So, okay, great, we know how to build a boat that floats. And so that told them something about construction that was passed on to their heirs. And so now they're sitting here with this oral tradition about how to do things, and they, want, they decide we're going to build a city, and we're going to build this tower. Now, what makes this project suspect to God? Well, one of the things that makes it suspect is that they didn't have permission to do this. You ever think about that? That maybe God has a will about what projects are done? That it's just not up to us to go build a construction project you know Hebrews 3 says this that that everything is built by someone and God is the builder of everything which suggests that if we go about building something we need to get a divine building permit we need to be sure that God has authorized the project now the thing that these people were under was called the creation mandate the creation mandate was given to us in Genesis chapter 1 and that mandate basically says that God created man to rule his physical creation. And the way he was going to rule it was by expanding all over it and then bringing the, the mastery of the creation under man's control so that man could develop the technology. You see, there's technology that's being used here. You don't build a building without technology. You need to know how to build a building. I grew up in the construction business. That was my father's business. And so I learned the mechanical trades—plumbing, air conditioning, fire protection. So I had to learn how these things worked, and I was taught these things largely by my parent, by my, my father, and the people that worked for my father. So we learn these things through empirical methods. We learn by thinking and seeing how to improve things, and we learn learning by knowing well what works and what doesn't work. So. We do the same things today that they did then. That's what they did is they were discovering what worked. So they built this tower. And the question is, okay, now what, what, we, what facilitated success for these people? What are the, the lessons that they learned through rational, empirical pragmatism that facilitated their success? So let me just look at some of these lessons with you. Number one, there was unity in communications. You see, they couldn't have any success if they couldn't communicate well. And I can tell you this, doing consulting work, what I run into over and over again is the same problem. I get into an organization and I'm trying to find out what are the issues here and almost invariably either right up front or very soon in the conversation will be a comment about there's no communication here or the communication is very poor, communication is incomplete, communication is misleading something's wrong with the communication. That's always, almost always the case. So here you have unity of communication and that was one of the great principles that enabled them to have some success. And they obviously gleaned that pragmatically. They discovered, okay, we got to be unified in our communication or there's no hope for us building anything together. Then they had to find the proper place. You see, if you're going to build a a tower that's going to go straight up, one of the things that you've got to do is just got to go straight up. It can't be leaning. What happens if that tower is leaning just a little bit and you just keep building on it? What's eventually going to happen? It's coming down. Because eventually, gravity is going to be, be strong enough on it to pull it down. And so you've got to have it straight up. So it's good to start with a flat plane. That gives you a better opportunity to go straight up. And undoubtedly, they had some kind of technology to help them keep it, keep it straight. I don't know, they may have had primitive levels. Then we have the proper technology. They use bricks instead of stone. Now why would you use bricks instead of stone? Well stone is irregular. It's hard to get stone you know, uniform. But if you can make the brick, you can get a mold, and you can make the brick all the same. And so they were using that technology. And of course they used tar for mortar because it would provide waterproofing. Now, how about your leadership? Notice this, it says, come let us build. You see, there's a heart here for a unified leadership. We're gonna do things together. See, another thing I hear frequently in organizations is there's no unity in the leadership. Everybody's got their own agenda. Everybody's doing their own thing. Now, obviously there are, there are companies where that's not true, but I find frequently that is a problem in organizations. Well, that was not a problem here. Then there was a unity of strategy, objective and purpose. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven. They weren't having some leaders saying, well, let's build this, and some leaders saying, let's build that over there. Everybody was agreed. We're going to build a city, and we're going to build this tower, this monument to ourselves. And they had a unity of motive. It was all about making a name for themselves so they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, see, the creation mandate said, go and su- go scatter yourself all over the earth and subdue the earth and bring God's rule and reign on earth. But they didn't do that they decided to stop and make a name for themselves. You see, if they had been scattered, they would have been nameless. Nobody would know them. People know someone that have stopped and built a monument to themselves because the monument then is known. And so they were all about their agenda, their will. They were not about God's will. So you can see how they operated and all these principles that they used that enabled them to have success came from rational, that is using their minds, empirical, they were working in the natural to see you know what would work and pragmatism which is all about what really does achieve the success that they want. So this is the worldview I think they had. God by his common grace and common grace means God grants ability for everyone whether they know Christ or not to be able to function at some level of success in the world. The most pagan person has the ability by the grace of God to treat you nicely. Now, If you're going to buy somebody from somebody that doesn't know Christ and they don't treat you nicely, you probably will walk away, won't you? Yeah, you want them to treat you nicely. Well, God's grace, His common grace enables them to do that. So this was these are people that apparently don't know Christ, don't know the living God, operating in common grace, discerning pragmatically what can work. And so they have a level of success. Notice they did have this level of success. Somebody coming along looking at the project before the end of it would say, hey, these people are quite successful. They have the resources to build this city and build this tower, and they're clearly very strategic and unified. And Boy, this looks like a very successful group. Maybe I want to imitate what they do. This would be a great study, and we can learn lessons from them. That's, just how, that's, how, the, that's how it looks like until reality sets in so the project was going well based on what could be seen in the natural but the project failed why did it fail well if God is not engaged with this creation the project should have been a success but God intervened now why did God intervene? now most of us don't really think about God intervening in our our business today and we don't really think about God being highly connected Sure, we might pray from time to time. We might share a scripture. We might even share a track with somebody. We might talk to somebody about the Lord, but we don't generally think about God being involved. Now, one of the ways we know that is how we solve problems. Now, all of you are problem solvers. You're business leaders, you're problem solvers. Now, just look at this. How do you go about solving a problem? What do you do? Once you get the problem out in front of everybody, and now you brainstorm. What, what are our options? What can we do? Somebody just somebody has this idea, that idea, this idea, that idea. You put it all together. What's the best idea? Okay, we like this. We'll go do that. Now, suppose you put yourself in the church context, and a problem pops up. What's the first thing you do in that context? You pray, don't you? Yeah, that's the first thing you do. So your problem-solving problem methodologies are different in the workplace from the church. Now, why is that? It's because we do not think about God in the same way at work as we do at church. Now, that's what I call deism. This is the error of deism. So if you're going to understand deism, you need to understand how God works to see and contrast to deism. Deism assumes that God created the universe, which we would all probably agree with. But then deism assumes that God walked away from it. He abandoned it. He's no longer engaged in his universe. So now he's leaving it up to us. we got to go figure it out ourselves and make it happen. It's up to us to go make a bunch of money. And one of the ways we've rationalized this is we say, well, gee, uh, my job in business is to make a bunch of money so I can go support kingdom causes somewhere. And so we, we even say, I want to be rich so I can go support kingdom causes. But, you know, here's the creator of the universe that doesn't need our money. Why do we think that that would be a good, good reason to, to be at work? What if the reason to be at work is for us to express the will and ways of God in the workplace? Us to be so tuned in to God that we are his emissaries to bring the rule and reign of God in the workplace? What if that's the real reason for work? What if it's really not about money? Money's just a byproduct. Money's just provision that God gives you to do his will. And by the way, I think that's what money really is. Because in the end, when you stand before the Lord, however much money you can stack up there, what do you think that's going to mean? the end of your life you stand before the Lord you stack up all the money you ever made you think it's going to mean anything the proverbs says this wealth referring to physical wealth is worthless in the day of wrath but righteousness delivers from death you see in the end what's going to count is did you do the will and the ways of God it's not how much money you made money is a tool to do the will of God money is like a screwdriver or a hammer or a saw Now. Those of you that that work with your hands, you appreciate those tools, don't you? But suppose you had a, a garage full of screwdrivers, would you feel rich? Probably not. But if you had a garage full of money, you'd probably feel rich, wouldn't you? Okay? Because you don't see money as a tool. You see a screwdriver as a tool, but you don't see money as a tool. The screwdriver is a tool to accomplish a task. Money is a tool to accomplish a task. And so when we get that mindset now, we can begin to see biblically what work really is. And we can get away from the empirical, pragmatic approach and begin to approach things biblically, thinking, God, we want you to define everything. You define success. You define the purpose and meaning of business. You define how we hire and fire people. You define how we manage. You define how we sell. All these things. Tell me, how many of you have ever studied business from a biblical perspective yeah probably virtually none of you occasionally when I ask that question there might be somebody who'll hold up their hand kind of weekly you know sort you of know? I say well where did you learn it? Did you learn it from your family? No well did you learn it from your church? No did you learn it from school somewhere? No well where did you learn it? Well I read a book okay you read one book and so that makes you an expert you know so generally I. It, when I get to the bottom of the case I discover they really don't have much biblical knowledge because we don't read the Bible thinking about business that's not in our mindset you know we read the Bible and we kind of compartmentalize it to the spiritual life which has nothing to do with our business so that's the challenge we all have we wind up without knowing it we become deistic we don't mean to be a deistic you know, it's not intentional. It's just we kind of drifted into it because we haven't been challenged to think differently. So, how do you think the ba- the ba- Bible participants would respond to the question today? The whole issue about, you know, it- deism. Do you think they would agree with deism? Knowing, having experienced what they've experienced now, what do you think they might say? They might say, "Don't do what we did. Don't make the mistake of thinking." That biblical principles for business come from rational, empirical pragmatism. That is not where they come from. They come from God. And we've got to begin to see scripturally. So is God engaged with his creation or not? Does he care about business? Hopefully by now I've said enough for you to say, yes, he does. And here's a text that says it. So let me just read this real quickly to you because I want to get on over to another text real quickly. Remember the former things. This is God speaking. Those of long ago, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand. You see, God has a purpose. He has a plan he's executing, and our business activities need to fit into his plan. If they don't fit in his plan, they're probably going to get judged just like the Tower of Babel project got judged. So my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. Notice this is God saying, look, I have a plan, I have a purpose, and I will get whomever I need to to execute it. If I need a bird, I'll get a bird. If I need a man, I'll get a man. Now notice, you know, he's very personal and individual. He doesn't say, an army. He didn't say a flock. He says a man, a bird, illustrating his personal intent for each one of us. For what I have said, that I will bring about, and what I have planned, that I will do. Nothing is going to thwart his will in the end. You see, the Tower of Babel project was an attempt to disobey God that God judged. When When we try to do things outside the will and ways of God, we will get judged. So here's the Lord's response to these empirical pragmatists These people trying to define reality themselves using their own definitions instead of leaning upon the truth of who God is and how he works. And so the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. He's saying to us the power of the principles that they were practicing is enormous because those principles lined up with God but they had the wrong motives and God is all about motives and so here comes the judgment and the way he judged them was he confused the communication and perhaps that's a big clue to us do you think God is maybe he knows how to put his finger on the most important issue you know if he's going to pronounce judgment he's not, he doesn't have to guess at what to judge he knows exactly how to judge he judges with the communication so he confused their communication and that totally stopped the project. So here's a lesson. Building as empirical pragmatist based on common grace will lead to judgment. You see, that's what they were all about. is they were using God's principles, but they were these principles had they had learned empirically and they were pragmatic about their definitions. They weren't looking, to line up with God's will or God's ways. They were looking to take the principles that they wanted to accomplish their agenda, to do their will according to their ways, to build a name for themselves. And God says, no, you're not gonna do it in my universe. It isn't gonna work. So how does one build organizations that would be blessed and will last? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. Reject deism. Reject the idea that God is disconnected from the universe. He's not. We saw that in Isaiah 46. He's not disconnected, he's engaged. And we saw it in Tower Babel project. He came down to a project that was being very successful in the natural, and he says, you've got the wrong motives, it will not stand. So reject deism, embrace alignment with God's will and ways. Seek to find what God blesses. Have you ever thought about what God blesses? How many of you invest? You, you guys invest? All of you invest. You're not telling me the truth here. Okay, all of you invest. Okay, you're business leaders. You invest. You make investment decisions every day. You invest your time. You invest your talent. You invest your treasure. That's what all of us do. I make a lot of investment decisions for my family, and I spend a lot of time asking the Lord, "What will You bless?" Because that's what I, I don't want to invest in a tower of Babel. You, so it can look real good. It can look real attractive. But it's on the road to judgment. I don't want to invest in that. I want to invest something that lines up with you, that you are blessed. So I'm, I'm always looking for that, that angle, and it's, oh, it's very challenging. Try to find some analyst that does research based on that. I haven't found it yet. I, I keep looking for some analyst that's going to think about this biblically enough to start analyzing companies, seeing how well they line up with God. By the way, that would be a new business opportunity for somebody. You know, it would probably be highly successful when they finally got it going. Okay, so alignment with God begins with our motives. God is engaged with his creation is concerned about our heart, our motives. So a couple of texts here that you already probably know. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's looking inside. He's not looking at the outward trappings. He's looking at our motives. Then you have this one. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, what we do seems right to us, or we wouldn't do it. Nobody here in this room would do something that they didn't think was right. We always come up with a rational justification for what we do. But you see, God is looking at our heart, what our real motive is. So in addition to motives, God blesses alignment with himself. This is the whole question of what does God bless? So here's the text I wanted to show you. Uh, Very quickly, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. Now, this is a text you probably all know. But have you ever thought about this text in light of business? You probably haven't. I didn't for a long time. Until finally, I kind of woke up one day when I was searching out the question, what will God bless? What will really prosper? What will endure in God's universe? And I ran across this and I said, wow, this is a pretty clear text. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the revelation of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You want that? It tells you how to prosper. It tells you how to be successful, how to be blessed in God's universe. It's to delight in the law of the Lord. And on this law, you meditate it day on, on it day and night. Now, what does day and night mean? Well, what do you do it by day? Well, probably you work. And in the context of the scripture here, they didn't have... a. A, a, an idea of a night shift. That was not a concept to them. That's something that we've come up with because of the power that we have and the ability to have lights and all that stuff. But back, back then, basically, you worked during day and the night. You went home with your family. You ate your dinner and went to bed. Then when sunrise came, you worked again. So when he says day and night, he said basically day is work. Night is home with your family at rest. So he said, what I want is a man that loves me so much and loves my word so much that he meditates on it continuously all day long at work. Now, if you're going to meditate on the word all day long at work, that word is going to shape you. It's going to shape your definitions. It's going to shape your decisions. It's going to shape your conversation, your interaction. Your whole worldview is going to be transformed because the word of God is going to be shaping you. That is the key to prosperity. Now, if you don't do this, look what happens. It says, not so the wicked. That is, the wicked don't prosper, even though the wicked may look like they're prospering. You know, there are a lot of people around the world today that are in rebellion against God. They are are opponents of God and and who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And they have a bunch of money. Now, how do we explain that? Well, may I just point you to Psalm 73? We don't have time to go look at it. But Psalm 73 answers the question very clearly. In that psalm, the psalmist is very angry with God. Have you ever been angry with God? Kind of ticked off with God? Saying, God, you know, you're not running your universe right. You don't really understand something here. Do you understand, God, how righteous I am, how holy I am, how much I seek you? and look what you're doing you're giving me a, a really tough life you know I'm struggling I've got all kinds of financial issues and you know my family's got problems and we're, we're not as healthy as we ought to be and look at these wicked people over here they have a bunch of money and they're healthy and they're thumbing their nose at you and they're they're just acting like they don't need you they can just exist without you they're in total rebellion against you here I am trying to be this holy person well clearly the psalmist is very out of order but it's a very, very interesting way the psalmist presented and God very patiently listens to this temper tantrum on the part of the psalmist and finally God says, okay, let me show you reality and then he opens the door to heaven and shows the psalmist reality and the reality is those people, those rich people who are in rebellion against God are on a slippery slope to judgment that's the reality of rich people who reject God just like the Tower of Babel They obviously were rich people. Now how many of you, or how many people you know, could stop whatever it is you're doing to support yourself and build a city, build a tower to yourself? Not too many people could do that. There might be a few of you that could pull that off, but most people need a paycheck fairly regularly to be able to pay their bills. Well, so these people clearly had had a level of success, had accumulated some assets, and so now they're gonna stop and build this project and apparently, there's not much concern about resources. They seem to have plenty of resources. So these are people that could pull this off. These are people that maybe are being pictured in Psalm 73. And so the key is, can we be smart enough, biblical enough to recognize when a person has money, that may or may not be a blessing? If that person doesn't know the Lord, then that money is probably going to be judgment for them, and it's just a matter of time before the judgment happens. If a person does know the Lord and is properly stewarding that money, it's a blessing. So it depends on your relationship with God. What's going on in your heart? You can't look at the external and draw the right conclusion. You have to look inside the heart at the motives. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here. Not so the wicked. The wicked are not going to prosper in the end. They may look like they're prospering short term, but in the end they don't. They are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you like to know that the Lord is watching over you in your business? Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't it feel comforting? Like, okay, I am lining up with his will and his ways, and there's protection now from him as I execute these things. I'm not just out there going, figuring it out myself and doing what I want to do. I'm not just making it happen because it's the powers in me. I am operating under his authority and under his protection and under his guidance, under his direction. And that's where the blessing is. And to do that, I need to be in his word. I need to be building on his word. Now, today, one of the common things that's at least spoken of in the United States, I don't know about here, but we frequently talk about integrating our faith in our work. Do you all use that terminology? It's almost like, well, here's work over here, and here's God over here. And, you know, work is really someplace that God doesn't belong. But we're going to be magnanimous to God, and we're going to invite him into the workplace. You can come work with us, God, and you can be a partner with us, but really we'll let you know what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. That's, that's to me, the kind of the picture of it. And I think that's such a wrong picture of reality. I think we need a biblical model for how to build a model that really rests on biblical thinking. And so what I've done is I've written a book that presents a model. It's called the Beyond Babel Model, and I've got just a couple of minutes. I'm just going to quickly show you the model and tell you the the key elements of the model and offer this model as a biblically based worldview as opposed to the common rational empirical pragmatism that most people operate by in business. So a biblical approach is approach that begins with a biblical worldview at the foundation. So this is kinda like a building. You see, there's the foundation of the building, and you see this foundation is absolutely essential to support everything above it. And you'll see that biblical worldview, which is biblical philosophy, values, principles, and practices, now permeates everything in the organization. Everything now is shaped by biblical thinking. Then the next thing you have to have is an equally yoked senior leadership team. Equal yoking means that you got that you're called to be on part of that team, that you have a heart, you know, to do whatever it is the organization is doing. You've got biblical worldview, you've got skill and ability that the team needs, and everybody trusts each other. So now you have you have an equally yoked team that can pull together and accomplish something the next step is strategic planning strategic planning is about discerning the will of God and there's a very clear text in James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17 that says exactly that it says, it's it's, it's a wonderful text it says, okay you say we're going to go to this city and we're going to conduct business and make a bunch of money now what is that? what do we call that? we call it a business plan, don't we? I have written dozens and dozens of business plans over my consulting career and every one of them said the same thing. We're going to go to this city, we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to make a bunch of money. You know, if I ever wrote a business plan that said we're going to go to this city and lose a bunch of money, nobody would buy the plan. It's got to say we're going to make a bunch of money. Well, that's, that's how we, we build business plans. I've done five-year business plans, I've done 10-year plans, I've done 30-year plans. I did a 60-year plan one time. I've done all kinds of business plans they always say the same thing and that text in James 4 says yeah that's how you do a business plan and then it says but who are you you don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow you're just a mist that's here for a little while then you're gone I mean how arrogant for you to think that you can go do this in your own ability he says you need to plan but here's the way you need to plan you need to be saying if it is the Lord's will we will do this or we will do that you see it's a whole different approach to planning submitted to the will of God seeking to discern the will and ways of God so that's what a strategic plan is now some people I run into say well look I am holy I walk with God so I don't need a plan God's just gonna show me as I walk along well I don't see that in scripture what I see is God saying to us you need a plan but you need to recognize that your plans have to line up with me and my will. They're not your will. Don't build Tower of That's not going to work. You've got to build things that I want to build. You've got to be like Noah when Noah was directed to build the boat. And God told him exactly how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, all the details. That's the kind of insight we need from God. You know God can communicate like that? He can direct you into exactly what he wants you to do if you learn how to hear his voice. Now the fourth element of the model is probably most common to all of you because if you had business training or you've ever spent any time at a bookstore, y'all remember what a bookstore is? You still have bookstores? Yes. I mean, we, we don't have bookstores in the US anymore. Everything's going electronic, Amazon, downloads, all that stuff. So, but when we had bookstores, I would walk down the business aisle and I would look at all the business books, you know, and invariably they were all how to's how to do this, how to manage, how to be, do strategic planning, how to hire, how to fire, you know, how to be a good leader, you know, how to how to deal with IT, all kinds of issues that come up in business all the time. That's what they were out. Well, the how-tos are up here. I want you to notice the world makes the how-tos the big thing, but in my model, it's the fourth element. It's not the highest priority thing. It happens after these other things are in place. You have to execute with excellence, and there are there are seven key elements that I give you there that help you shape you to execute with excellence and finally finally you have to have your excellence validated by the customer you have to hear from God through your customers about whether or not you have really discerned the will and ways of God so they'll be giving you feedback about how well you're really doing and whether or not God's really paying for you what you're doing you know God pays for what he orders You know, God's got a plan, and God's got all the resources at his disposal he needs, so he'll fund his will. And we see that in Matthew 6.33, where it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll take care of everything else. So our priority, both personally, in our churches, in our businesses, in our communities, should be to seek first the kingdom, which is the will of God, and righteousness, which are the ways of God, and he'll take care of the money he'll take care of that so customers are going to give you feedback as to whether or not you've really discerned what god is saying or you're building a tower of babel if you're going to make an investment decision you're going to back somebody don't you want to know whether or not they're building god's way or they're building a tower of babel wouldn't that be good to know that's what i'm looking for i want to find the people building god's way because i know those people will prosper those people will be blessed that investment will yield a return. That's where I want to go.